Welcome to episode number 150 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. This is the podcast for building a global community around process safety, industries handling combustible dust. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Cloney. In today's episode, we're talking about the history of firefighters for healing with Jake LeFerriere. He's the founder and executive director of Firefighters for Healing. They're based just outside of Minneapolis, Minnesota. Jake, welcome to the Dust Safety Science Podcast. Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited. I'm really excited. This is a bit of a special podcast in my mind for a couple of reasons. One, it's our 150th episode, so that means we've been running weekly for three years. Uh, we just reached 25,000 downloads, so it's kind of an exciting time to celebrate. And really, I, I want to share what Jake's has in his story, but also what Jake's doing with Firefighters for Healing. It actually has a really close relationship with something that's pretty close to you know, what I got involved with when I started Dust Safety Science. And even back when I, before that was MyDustExplosionResearch.com. That was a, a video of a rubber dust explosion um, that involved a, a gentleman named Kyle Flicker. Jake, as we'll get into in this interview a bit, was really involved with the healing process of, of Kyle after this rubber dust explosion with Firefighters for Healing. When I was talking to Kyle, he introduced me to Jake and said, you really got to talk to this group and see what they're up to and really share that out with your community as well. And I was really impressed by his organization. So in this episode, we're going to talk through Jake's background. We're going to talk about how Firefighters for Healing came about, what initiatives they have taken on, and, and probably share a bit about his interaction with Kyle and how that came about, what projects are underway today. I know they're celebrating some really, really, really cool initiatives that I think are so important for the area of Minnesota and beyond. And I really look forward to talking with those. And then at the end, I'm going to kind of put the spotlight on Jake, any recommendations he has for me and my work in terms of how we can better support victims of workplace tragedies like this. So Jake, I think the best place to start is is your story. Just, can you share some of your background and you know how you got to where you're at today? Yeah, absolutely, Chris. So I guess this this journey started for me uh, really as a young boy, about three years old. My dad was uh, a hero to me, and he was a Minneapolis firefighter. Um, and just being three years old, I was going down to the firehouse quite a bit uh, with him. I was riding the big red truck. I remember very vividly that I would be in the ladder truck. So uh, the till, the tiller man would drive the back ladder trucks. He would bring me up there and I'd be in his lap and I'd be driving the back of the ladder truck. And then, um, I would go in and raid the, you know, the candy closet locker. I would throw buckets of water and all the rest of the firefighters. So, you know, this was in my DNA and my blood right away. So, um, I knew what I wanted to be. It just took me a kind of a while to, you know, see that dream come to fruition. So many, many years, I started taking the test right out of high school and took me about 10 years to finally get through the civil service process. So uh, if anybody out there and your listeners ever know have taken the test, it's a very competitive test, but I got on and as and fulfilled this childhood dream in two, 2001. So I started my career actually, ironically enough, right where that firehouse is, my dad used to take me and that's called fire station eight. It's off 28th and Blaisdell in South Minneapolis. It's one of the busy. It, it's one of the busiest houses, not only in Minneapolis, as far as volume, runs of calls, but in the early '80s, '70s in the country. So basically, I got on the engine eight. So there was uh, two rigs in that stationed in that house in Fire Station Eight. They call it Crazy Eights. So there's um, Fire Engine Eight. So uh, engine company has all the water and the hoses and whatnot. And then ladder five was host there. So ladder five has the big ladders 
go in there, the truckies go in there and they break the door down for us, the engine company to bring the hose line and, and, and really put the wet stuff on the right stuff. So I started my career at engine eight there and it was, it really was more than I could ever, ever, ever dream it to be, to be a firefighter every single day. I was so excited to go to work for a new experience, a new journey, a new challenge. So I guess what consists of, of in sitting in the firehouse for 24 hours is you're on call 24 hours. Um, runs come in, whether they're medical runs, uh, 80% of them are medical related, whether it's, you know, heart attacks, shortness of breath, difficulty breathing, drug overdoses, gunshots, and et cetera, right? 20% of the runs actually then go to fire related runs. So, you know, people, you know, burning their food on the, on the stovetop, University of Minnesota kids, you know, oversleep or pizza in there and just all those kind of fire alarms. We 20% of kind of the, of our calls. So I, I got into it. I was, I was all in. Um, and I was with a crew, our, our crew there between our engine company and our truck company. I had some really workhorses there with old school, traditional, old school firefighter tradition. So I learned from the last of the firewalkers, we would call them like the, 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 really the guys going in and putting, knocking these quick knocked on fires. And they were my dad's friends. I mean, some of them were Vietnam vets and I got to learn really early on getting these fires, how to be, really become a good firefighter. So super, super exciting. So I'll flash forward to, um, you know, my career took me in a lot of different places from there, uh, to another busy rescue company. So from there, I went to nine, actually, it was in Southeast Minneapolis, more by the University of Minnesota. So a rescue company basically is a big toolbox, a specialized technical company that specializes in weed in and hazardous materials. So I know a lot of your listeners probably know a little bit, you know, there's maybe there's something there too of understanding, but so not only hazardous materials that we respond to, but car wrecks, you know, like the 35W bridge collapse, all these high, you know, technical rescue scenarios. We do a lot of rope too. So we were versed in rope rescue and everything from the river. And that. So anyway, we got, I was stationed at rescue nine. And um, at this point in my career, and uh, it's really hard to get on these companies too. I should say it's seniority based. Um, so it took me a long, a long time to kind of get to the, to rescue nine. And this is housed at station 11. So the, really the kind of the, the, the piece that I want to, that kind of really did this was my event, my experience. So July 3rd, 2010, we, uh, it was a Saturday. It was a, a very beautiful Saturday, vivid. I can remember vividly. I was driving to work that day. There were blue skies. It was a gorgeous day. No traffic going to the station. And on Saturdays is a really unique thing for the fire service. So in the morning we get in to kind of relieve the ongoing shift and we get some coffee going and we always heckle that other shift trying to figure out, you know, what their day consisted of, where we're picking up, right. What, what tools are need to be cleaned and the saws got gas. So anyway, we're always heckling that crew. And, and then um, Saturdays are kind of cool after that. Cause you're just, it's rig day. So we'll go out and clean the rig. We'll wash it. We'll make sure we clean every, every, you know, every tool we got and make sure they got gas. So if we get a job, we're ready to go, but it's, it's kind of a fun day, especially in the summer. So we get a lot of water balloon fights. A lot of people got buckets and they're bucketing each other. And you know, like the, the culture and the tradition is, is, is there and it's a fun day. So anyway, 
we're doing our rig inventory that day, that Saturday morning we came in after we leave the ongoing shift. And it's pretty much just a normal standard Saturday. And about, about 10, 30, 11, we were going to go out and get lunch. So when you work 24-hour shifts, you need to go get your lunch and um, dinner, right? As a, and that's, we cook at the station and it's a long shift. So when we're getting ready to go out, there's um, a grocery store, a rainbow over Northeast Minneapolis that we always go to is called Corey. So we, we went up there that Saturday, we left the, to, uh, the firehouse to go up to the rainbow and, and get our groceries for lunch and for dinner. And um, we're in there with the engine, with engine 11, and we get a run come in, um, uh, dispatched in on our radio. Uh, we got our initial assignment over to 17th Avenue Southeast, engine 11, rescue nine. So we were in the store. We didn't get our lunch yet or anything or our dinner. We ran out quick to the rig, to, on the rig, and we donned our stuff. And then basically, uh, the address is really, really close to where we were at at this fire at the at the grocery store. So our driver pretty much put in code three, which is lights and sirens, and uh, hit the pedal to the middle. And basically, we just uh, we got over, responded really quick response time over to a uh, to the street where the house was on Seventeenth Avenue. Um, the engine company pulled in right before us, so they kind of went down, and they do this thing called the initial size up. So basically. The engine company captain becomes incident commander and just radio is what he's seen as far as visibility. So he had basically radioed, Hey, we have a three story house. We have some smoke showing no visible fire. Uh, we're going to assume command and we're going to go in interior and look, um, and, and, and set up for an interior offensive offense, uh, offense attack. So at this point we came in right behind, we were on rescue. So we're a truck company and we pretty much did the same thing. I hopped off the rig, my SCBA and my axe, my hook and my captain did the same thing. So when we were actually walking down the street to take a look at the house, we do the same thing. We just kind of do a quick size up. Uh, we got a big three story. We had some, some smoke coming from these eaves, which isn't a big deal at this point. Got no visible fire. So we were just, it's business as usual, normally a normal fire if there is ever such a thing. So when we got up to the, the doorway of the house, I was throwing my SVN and my captain was. So we were, we basically were going to go up to the third floor and do a primary search, which is making sure everybody's out of the house, making sure nobody's left in there. Simultaneously, we're going to look for the, the seat of the fire. So we're going to go, we go in the front door, which and I'll tell you later is a lucky event that I even put my mask on because most of the time I wouldn't even put it on with this light of a haze out there. So we went up to the third floor actually, and it was in, we made it to this room up on the third floor. Um, and it was an older tw- 1920s house with bloom. Con- you know, it was just a, it was a really rare cockloft like type of uh, bloom construction house. So we got up to the, to the third floor and I got, I went into the room and it was just no visible fire, just some haze. I went into the room up there to the right and my captain actually went to the left. And we kind of met each other in the halfway of the room. I went right, he went left, and we made each other in the kind of the halfway point. At this point, we heard the fire kind of crackling in the knee wall. So within the wall, it was kind of popping like a kind of a campfire. So at this point, business as usual, we called, we radioed down for engine 11. Hey, uh, we're on the third floor. We found the fire. Bring the hose line up. We'll wait for you guys to get up here, and then we'll expose the fire. And put the wet stuff on the red stuff, really the water on the fire. So as soon as we heard engine 11 kind of make it up to the third floor through the stair, it was all wooden stairs, you can hear them clumping up there. I uh, took my axe 
and I went to breach the wall. So basically what I was doing is chopping into the wall. And I know that you're, you're maybe some of your listeners remember back in the, in the eighties, there was a movie called backdraft and it had Kurt Russell in it. So at this point, what happened was there was a fire that was smoldering and was starving for oxygen that was con- contained in the knee wall there. And being that this house was actually cut up um, from a slumlord um, and it wasn't to code, this fire got that introduction to auction. So basically what happened was like a bomb that went off. There was containment, ignition, um, and fuel. And it got that introduction to auction. So it, it was really a bomb that uh, detonated. It blew me 11 feet one way and then blew my captain the other way. And um, the house actually from the brunt force of the explosion picked up off the foundation and actually lifted the roof right off. And then it was a floor to ceiling fire and wall to wall fire was an inferno. The engine company that had the water actually, when we were burning up, got knocked, pushed down the stairs by the brunt force of it too. So it was like a, a big wind that actually knocked the, picked those guys up off their feet and knocked them down. The fire knocked them right down. You would sound like a freight train. So we had no water. And those, their guy, they lost their hose lines, so it was under pressure. And it was kind of dancing around there. I, I crawled over. I found actually, I saw a, steam, uh, a beam of sunlight come through the window, and I crawled over to the window, and um, I was on fire. So everything I had was melting. My my helmet, my CBA, I was burning, um, and I didn't have gloves on because I, I had taken them off to fill the knee walls for where the heat was. So I pounded the the rest of the glass that didn't, ex- that didn't um, burst and come out of the window with my left hand. And then um, the reason why I'm talking to you, Chris, today is because uh, there was, I jumped, um, there wasn't a ladder coming. So I jumped on fire and, and luckily there had been a porch overhang that saved my life. That's why I'm talking to you today. And if that hadn't been there, I would have died right on three story of impact probably. And, and in just all the injuries I sustained in there. So at this point, I landed on this porch overhang and my captain, the engine company got back up there with the hose line, were able to go up and pull my captain on on fire and literally put him up. I, I did everything I could do to pick myself up, up off this porch. At this point, they had uh, laddered the porch. I was able to make my way down it. And then um, I didn't know how bad it was, Chris, at this point until I started seeing people turning their heads and they couldn't look at me they just couldn't look at me. I was between, I was burned up and then my hands, all the skin was falling off my hands. So I was able to kind of, I broke my foot on this impact too. So I was hobbling down to the ambulance and um, I didn't, when I went to turn on my turnout code, it was that graphic with all my skin and everything. And it was really, really bad. They put me um, on the gurney and they whisked me down to uh, our local hospital here in Minneapolis. It's a level one trauma center. It's called uh, Hennepin Healthcare. Uh, they, they whisked me down code three and they got me on a couple lines for pain. And I, when I got admitted to the state room there, it was the most bizarre thing that's ever happened to me in my life. I didn't, my hands were swelling so much from not only the, just the thermal burning of them and them being on fire and, but the swelling from all the heat within. So they were going to chop them off at first and they, they didn't. And they did these things called this fasciotomy. So they let all the heat and all the burning and all the swelling out of there. So my hands went blow up. So I, um, I was admitted there with third and fourth degree burns to my hands. What I found out later is 
fourth degree means it burns right down to your tendons. And then it was burned a vast majority of my body, second degree. And then I hurt my knee and I broke my talus bone and all. And um, what that meant then was my next chapter in, in my journey, which was really a, learning what a burn unit is. I, I never knew what a burn unit was. I, most of the people in the job at the Minneapolis Fire Department don't even know what that was until really my experience, at least in my generation. So in a burn unit, they're, um, they're really, it's just hell on earth is all it is. I can lack of better terms. It, they're highly intense environments that are sterile, that are just, they garb you up and, and they're infection and, and people are, they're just, they're very intense. And the big reason why they're intense is for the level of pain that people are going through in primarily skin grafting. So what happened was I, with my injuries being so substantial like that, they didn't know if they could keep my insulin. I figured out I had blood flow when they did. It was just the luck of a guy, uh, one of my surgeons, I had two surgeons working on me and one decided to keep them. And then they started skin grafting. So they took all my skin from my legs to put them on the areas would burn down. So they put it all over my hands. So I underwent uh, many, many 12 skin graft, 12 that I can count to probably more, 12 skin grafting surgeries. And in this point and in, in this journey, I really was struggling to even want to live anymore, to be honest with you. Chris, I, I didn't even, but the biggest thing to this was I, I knew that I probably wouldn't be able to go back to fighting fires again, you know, really my purpose in life. And then just the sheer intensity of the pain, I would cry every day. And just knowing this, these, when they do um, my, when they do my dressing changes every day from the skin grafts, they do some debridement. So they'd take your wounds out and they debrid the wounds. So your wounds would heal properly. And when they'd scrape my hands down, there wasn't no Dilatins in the world that could take me from this pain. So I was crying every day and really what happened at this point, in my journey is, two little boys that were the saving grace for me that came into my world. And, and so there was a two little boys that happened that actually were admitted to the room next to me. And the reason they were admitted is they were, their family fell on hard times. They were living in a tent. The three year old was playing with a lighter in this tent. The five year old, actually the, the tent caught on fire. was involved. It was fully involved. The five-year-old heard his little brother screaming and then went and got his brother out, drug him out to safety. In the midst of all this, they both were burned about 40% of their body, the larger, all over their upper extremities and their face. So when they wheeled them in, essentially on the gurney next to me, I instantaneously, my perspective went from being inward to outwards. Like, look at these two little boys now. They have it way worse than you you can do this. You can get through this. And the other big piece was, and I didn't figure this out till later is, well, they didn't have their choice. They never had a choice in their matter at all of this injury. So I knew kind of the inherent risks of being a firefighter. They didn't have that same option. So anyway, in this moment, these two little boys became my angels and, and my, my perspective changed to want to live, to keep fighting through this and to heal to do something more. And I didn't, I didn't know, and I'll talk a little bit more about what that means later down in there, do something more means. But at this point, the community came together. This was all over the news station medias here. And the community came together. They saw that, you know, two firefighters were really badly injured, career-ending injuries. 
let's rally. So they put to, they pulled together a fundraiser down here. Um, it's a really big bar downtown Minneapolis. It's called uh, Seven Sushi. They did this and they had everybody come. Every fire department in the city came. Everybody came to support us. I was in a walker at this time and they in a wheelchair and a walker and they brought me to this, this event. And the only thing I could ever was on my heart really heavy that, that, that day still at these two little boys. And now I, I saw nobody was advocating for them either. They were getting lost in just in the complexity of the struggle. So anyway, in this on our medical prognosis, when we donate, we got $5,000 of those and we wanted to give back to there's a burn unit here locally. It's HCMC in regions. So at that time, we gave $5,000 to regions to send some kids out to uh, Chile, Colorado to a burn camp. So in this, in essence, Firefighters for Healing was then born in that moment. Um, I can, you know, we'll flash forward here shortly to talk about some of the bigger picture initiatives and what we're kind of doing now from that. But that was the infancy of it and how it all kind of came together. And this now has become... You know, obviously I, I was, had to, I went back, I should say this, I took me a long time to figure out how to use my hands again and learn how to use them again and to, to go through the evolutions of healing. So a year, it took me a year to get through all the treatments and the surgeries and the therapies, the OT and, and just work through this mentally. And I guess now, you know, back then PTSD wasn't really out of the closet so much, you know, and couldn't talk about that stuff. But now I know looking at, I went through a whole mental psychology of this uh, healing as well. So it took me a year to get one. I think, you know, I wanted to go back to work and I wanted to be a firefighter. I lost everything in my life at this point. Um, a lot of things personally happened at this time too. And I just thought I, I wasn't ready to say that this was my goodbye yet. So I fought really hard. Um, I was a, I was a liability. Um, and I, I had to jump through a lot of hoops to get back to Minneapolis fire, to get back on the rig. And the biggest thing, the first day back, I, it took me a long time and I finally got back on the rig. But the first thing I learned really quick, Chris is it was different for me. I was a constant reminder to my crew of what could happen to any of them in a, in a second's motives. So I have disfigurements all over my hands. They look really scary. And it was a really, it was a really difficult time for me. It never was the same. So I fought that fight for, for, for three years. And then, um, my career came to an end. Actually, I was, we were training and I was hanging off a building and, and, um, we were doing some repelling off the sixth floor of our training facility. And my left hand just froze up on me from the, it actually was from the humidity and just, and it was time in that moment for me. So I kind of did some looking in the mirror and I, um, I had to leave the, my childhood dream and I had to leave that, that passion of mine. And it was one of the worst things I've ever had to go through on my life. The, the loss of losing that purpose was even more than the injury itself. So I went through all the same grieving things that anybody else in a major loss did. And then I still miss the job today. Um, so anyway, well, I just want to start, I just want to take a, a moment to just say, Thank you for sharing your story. The the folks to listen to this podcast, um, we've been doing a, a number of interviews with survivors, with um, victims' families, uh, with just the communities around where large explosions happen and some members of the communities. We always get really positive feedback from like emails and, and people will call me and say, hey, that was, that was really impactful. 
that's why I want to have you on and, and Dick talk about virus fighters for healing, but to share that story of, of what that's like, I, I, I do want to dig into a couple of pieces on, on this part because you, you mentioned something really important there, the, the kids, you know, getting lost, everybody was rallying behind yourself and your captain and, and that, and you kind of felt like those other burn victims were getting lost. I'm sure that's, that's like one example, but every day there's got to be, well, I, I know every day because we track fires and explosions and combustible dust handling issues around the world, but every day there's burn victims that go through the same pain that are quote unquote getting lost or not even, you know, getting acknowledged in the first place. So there's the physical challenges. You mentioned all those, but I just want to pause because I know it's going to come up firefighters for healing. discussing, but like, can you talk through some of the emotional, psychological challenges? You talk about not wanting to live. There's the pain. There's the despair. There's the letting go of all the things you did before. And I don't want to talk, like, tell me, tell me a bit about that because I just want it. I know the audience will appreciate hearing what the impact of that is um, at those levels, if, if you don't mind. Yeah, I mean... I'll definitely talk about a little bit more of an impact. One thing I just want to uh, kind of say to your point there is when the demographic typically that the burn population is that it hits, let's just say, even though it's a real small section, it's really a poor geography of the world. I mean, that's really the demographic. So not only are they getting forgotten for, you know, cause they don't have a platform and their injuries aren't really being reported, so to speak. They just didn't have maybe what normal people start from, right? And they're living in more driven poverty areas and building construction and things are down to of that, you know, and they do get lost. They don't have a platform. They're not, you know, so, uh, you know, we're, we're essentially what we do is advocate for them, you know, and that's kind of what I started doing then, but to your, to kind of get back into more of, you know, just, what this it really impacted me. It's like, so I, I guess what I'll share is, um, well, the two parts, the part when I first, when this explosion, this backdrop took, when I lived through this, it's even to this day, Chris, it's, it's a re it's a replay. Like it's, it's vividly seared in my, in my psyche. Right. It's, I see the fire. And when I say fire, it's just an inferno. And then my hands always get tender because that's, a vast majority of the pain. So they're really sensitive to weather, but that's always going back and forth. It's obviously as, as this, it's lessened that effect, but um, nonetheless, it's, it's still there and it's always going to be there. And, I, and sometimes that's a good thing for me as far as the work of philanthropy. So it is, it's a heavy thing. And I've, I'd like to just add this, my faith has played a big part and big role of, of me getting through this, because I'll tell you what, when you come to that close and to death, you figure out how minutia you are, like how small you are in scale to, to see in that, that horizon of, of death and what that means, you know, and, and wh- how, what you do with it. And so it, I got scared and, I, and without my faith, there's a million times on this journey. I, I wanted to go take a left versus a right. And my faith kept me on this right path, taking them rights. Or I, I probably wouldn't have got here and speaking the way I'm speaking today with the foundation. I didn't want to go this way, but my faith is what I leaned into really when I'm dealing with a lot of this baggage and this, a lot of this, you know, PTSD and just a lot of the carnage that's still in my life because of that day. I always flip what's become my biggest blessing um, because when I track this back, I think about 
what are the chances that, first of all, backdraft or when the fire, when 1050, our fire investigator did their report for OSHA and whatnot, they decided that this is in the millions that this could have happened, a backdraft in itself, right? It's like dust explosion. They're very rare that they happen. This is in the millions. Okay. When I look at, oh, that's in the millions. And what are the chances of me jumping on fire from a third story building and landing on a porch over with two? So it was like, I was a winning lottery ticket for both of them just to it kind of survive this experience. But I look at now as like from this horrible day on the fire ground, it's burst so many great things that when I try to get back down in the weeds on this stuff and it's struggling, I just think about how many great things it's done for so many more people. And that's why I point my focus when I'm having those bad days. I just point it and think so many kids, so many of us have been changed because of, so I wouldn't change any of it, even though there is a lot that I still carry. So I know that kind of was a wide ranging, probably not a specific answer to your question, but I, I deal with that. And I, it's always going to be ongoing. And I think philanthropy has been a big um, healing healing component to that. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'll probably circle back to that when we get into talking about some of your work with folks. But I do. So you mentioned that you, you did end up back at the fire service for, for three years. I think you mentioned then it wasn't the right time for you. I want to get into some of your work with folks like Kyle and, and you know, how, how firefighters feel came about, but like, what was the, was there a day when you could say, Hey, firefighter for healing is an organization. Was it after you left the fire service? Just what did that, that transition look like? You know, it's really ironic that you asked that Chris, because now when I look back it's crazy how this kind of all shook out or evolved. So firefighters for healing, we were really at this point, pretty small scale. We were just having, a lot of the fire community meet at local bars and we do raffles and throw together some silent auction stuff. Like it, they're real small, smaller scales and not really too big picture thinking at that time. Right. It was just, we were, it was just about helping the burn community. That's what it was all about. And really this kind of jumps out a little bit and, and I'll kind of, it'll give you some more clarity and color, I guess, to the evolution of how this all kind of shook out. So, Nearing right at the departure of my retirement, we would start hosting, you know, we were hosting bigger fundraiser, but for some reason there was a, well, there was an award that came out by the, from the American Heroes Channel and Discovery Network. It was a powerful award in a gentleman's name. It was named Wallace Crowther, right? He was the man in the red bandana. Um, his story is profound. It's everywhere all over the world being the 20 year anniversary. So basically Wallace's story goes like this. He was in the cell tower and he actually was able to get 12, save 12 people that day from the cell tower actually. And they were able, the survivors actually were able to know that he had a red bandana and they were able to kind of tie it back. So this, this, while as this hero, there was an award in his name from the American Heroes and Discovery Network. So at some point in this journey, there was uh, now our board chair and a really one of my best friends named Chris Dunker. Well, he put us in for this award, me particularly, but our organization, the work kind of in the, in the background, you didn't tell anybody or anything like that. And in 2015, he comes to me and this is kind of what I'm getting ready to leave the department. We're having a big fundraiser at the same time. And he says, Jake, listen, I put us in for the, the man in the red bandana hero award. And I'm like, at first I, my only focus and only kind of train of thought was 
well, we're firefighters, Chris, and we don't, we don't need awards. We don't do this work for the awards. The, the work itself is what for. Friend with a big heart, he said, no, listen, I, I put us in for this award, you know, we're, you know, and I, I just want you to know, I'm like, well, it's good. I mean, you're in the top 50, you've been picked out to the top 50. I said, well, that's great. Let's just put it aside and get going back and focus on this fundraiser and what we do. So long behold, we get a call from the American Heroes Channel and the Discovery Network saying, hey, you guys won this award. And at this point, it was out of the country. So we, they, and the reason why I'm sharing this, not from a boastful heart, but to add more color to the foundation of overnight, the growth of it. So we got this national award and received a lot of attention. We flew out in front of 60,000 at the Boston College. It was Boston College. They played um, the Florida State, actually. So it was at BC, and there was 60,000 people there. And we received this live in ESPN. So from all this, created more momentum. The organization, when we came back from this award, our, our board of directors kind of, at this point, we knew it's the foundation grew overnight. So we needed to put more of a bigger picture vision to it and what we were going to do as far as our fundraising and what our initiatives and our goals. So I retired at the same time and it kind of like was, I just naturally kind of went into this role and the organization just kind of grew overnight. So I went from, you know, losing a purpose, you know, greater than myself, serving, serving our communities as a civil servant, like my dad, you know, to becoming, you know, a, a heart of philanthropy of, for firefighters for healing. And, and um, then we kind of, things just, you know, compounded from there and it was, and just really grew, Chris, um, the organization did. So. So I, like I mentioned before, um, anyone that's seen me present at our global dust safety conference that we have every year elsewhere in the world where I present on combustible dust on the front end awareness, I'll often play a video and that video is, is of a Fox noon news broadcast of Kyle Flicker, who's a, a, a worker in 2000. 16, I believe, that was at a, a, a plant using a rubber lathe and he had a combustible dust explosion event in the dust collector room. He went to, to address a fire. There's a small flame on top of the dust collector and, and these are in, in Kyle's words from the video. And he got up on a ladder and, and he brushed that flame with his hand. And I recently talked to Kyle in preparing for an interview on the podcast we haven't done yet. And he really said, this is something he's actually done a couple of times. But on this day, dust deflagration occurred inferno in the entire room he banged on the door got out but he was actually in a coma afterwards for a long period and i played this video to show this small flame and how it can so quickly accelerate in your case it was a backdraft explosion and and tear and going into the wall and it, introducing that oxygen in kyle's case it was just the right conditions of a, a dust cloud stirred up from either his hand movement or something else and and that flame but this little minute you know, small, 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 small detail, small thing forever changed his life, forever changed his family's life, probably forever changed his community's life, just like you've experienced. And then I stop for a second always and say, I'm not sure even with 10 years of experience, a decade in combustible dust, that I wouldn't brush the, the flame myself. So I hope you get Kyle on the podcast to go through that story. But I want to give you a chance. I know where I was introduced to you was through Kyle, through conversation with him. As much as you're comfortable, because I know you're involved with his recovery process, can you? I think this will give some context to some of the stuff that you've you've done. Can you talk a bit about his 
you know, recovery process and how are you involved again, as much as you're comfortable and we'll get Kyle to fill in the blanks when we get him on the podcast. Absolutely, Chris. All right. So, so Kyle, what you talked about in coma, so what they do to any burn survivor and with a major burn like that, they put you in a deuce coma for sure. And I actually went and got to meet Kyle when he was coming out of that induced coma. He was one big scar, honestly speaking, um, one burn. And he, I remember it vividly to go see him and he was laying in the hospital bed and his arms kind of lifted up on pillows and all the swelling. And he had uh, a trach at this time and he was just, just really struggling, struggling with wanting to live. And I didn't know now I'm looking at retrospect of the feedback I'm going to share with your listeners here and your audiences. In the moment, I was just going down there to do what we do. And what we do is as a burn survivor is I, I'm going to go down in there and visit somebody and accompany them in their struggle and their fight. I'm going to be there with them because I know what it's like and I'm not leaving them behind. I'm going to do what I can do. So I went down there and well, we always bring some goodies and little goodie bag and stuff, but more, it's just, you know, sitting down next to somebody and spending time with them. And I did that with Kyle and, you know, I don't know what the dialogue was there and the words were, but what I can say is from a friend, a very dear friend of both of Kyle and mine, his name's Phil Seif is me being there that day, sharing my experience with him and how I got through it, how I fought through it, gave Kyle a second chance and wanting to live he really was at a desperate place there and not wanting to live. And as a lot of, you know, a lot of people going through this experience are, and it just happened to be that divine intersection that day that I came through, I called a thin space. I was there for a bigger reason than for me or Kyle. And it kind of, kind of came together. And then later on, not only did I hear, you know, you, you saved Kyle's life through Phil and stuff. I didn't know anything. So I just was there trying to help him. And then that actually, I'll let him fill in more of that when he talks to you. But in that moment, I mean, I hear this in retrospect and I, I didn't know it in the moment, but now Kyle is one of a dear friend of mine. And as a burn survivor, you know, like any other camaraderie you build in these tough times, I mean, him and I have both have really just gotten close. And I feel like that's a small thing that we did as firefighters, killings, but that's, in essence, what the organization does, we go, we're boots on the ground in the hospital and we're visiting patients. And that's how our introductions, you know, met to Kyle. And then, you know, full circle, he was so, had a heart of gratitude through this whole experience. Then he wanted to give back to and pay it forward kind of thing. So now he's gotten involved with our organization and actually, you know, he sponsored a room with our new building. So anyway, that's kind of how, Kyle came to me and, and a special human being. And again, I mean, from a small flame, right? And I, small flame to small flame, and what, what kind of what that can do in, in in one's life. Yeah, it's a it's a crazy story. I hope we do a chance to talk to Kyle in terms of the the room goes silent whenever I play the video, anyway. And and people are are very contemplative because of the degree it was it was several months of coma, ten percent chance to live or, or thereabouts. And he did, uh, and he's gone on. So I'll, I'll, we'll let Kyle fill in the blanks on that. I want to talk about what products you have coming up next, but I, I want to—I just want to take a second on this analogy that came to mind, because we'll have folks listening to this that are incident investigators, that are firefighters, that are consultants, although they may not play this role as much. I'm going to talk about, but people that will be on the front lines when something goes wrong. And I came across an analogy that I thought might be helpful for them. I've 
experienced certain things in my life, but I haven't experienced this in my life. But I want to share this analogy with you. See if you if it's a helpful way for you. If you think it might be helpful for a way in a similar situation, somebody to go through this. And I say Phil Parker from a podcast on NLP or, or Mom Body Connection or something is where I got it from. It's called Be the Second Most. When they do experimental studies on mice, which don't do as much anymore back in the 70s and 80s, they would put them on electronic mats and shock them and you know do stuff to give them negative consequences, see what happens. And the mice would have, at start you know feel pain and, and that. Eventually they just give up. They sit there and their hair falls out and their, you know, their heart rate changes and their their health gets all messed up. But they they don't want to feel the pain. They sit on the mat and accept the shocks. Um, but if you take a second mouse and put it in there, both mice continue to feel the pain, but they don't have their hair doesn't fall out. They don't go through that despair because they have someone else's there that's experiencing that same pain. So I've heard it, I've heard that discussed in terms of of you know, uh, working with survivors of tragedies like this and it's, uh, be that second mouse. You, you don't have to actually be going through the pain. But just being there to share that experience, being there to take on that difficulty at the same time, I only share that one. It's hard for me to share, uh, but I only share that because I think it might be a tool if somebody's in the same situation saying, "I got to go talk to," I, I get the privilege to go talk to a burnt survivor. That they might be able to say, "Okay, I, I'm just going to be the second most here and go in with them." Does that analogy hold true with anything that you've seen or anything that might be helpful for the audience? You think? Yeah, for sure, Chris. I'll just say I've heard the same story with the mice thing, right? I, I knew that study. And then what I will say is from my own personal experience, what really saved me and got me where I'm at is from all the strangers that reached out and sent cards to me when I was in the hospital, I was down and out. I mean, I had wound vax on. My hands were, wound vax are just these big, they're like um, vacuum sealed bags. Um, they suck out all the stuff. They're supposed to enhance the healing and speed it up, but it never does. But They'd sent these get well cards, strangers, right? Just strangers. And years later, I think it was on our, my 10 year anniversary last year. I pulled all these cards out, these get well cards. And Chris, I'm not even kidding you. These things had an energy to them, right? And so what I've learned is, yeah, our medical, where we're at today in this stage in medical innovation is unbelievable for sure. There's no doubt, hands down. But what I will say is, there's a time. So clinicians do what they do, but I think where healing is really found is just that people, strangers coming together in community to surrounding and bearing witness, accompanying people in their struggles, like sending love, right? Sending those cards had an energy and a healing to them. And uh, so, yeah, there is, that is in essence, what I feel is really the ideal of healing. And that evolution and that process is that is people coming together, strangers, whoever it is, nonetheless, coming together with love and healing and, and well wishing and well wishing and prayers and all that stuff. And I, I, I couldn't agree more to that. I appreciate it. I mean, this is a good time to, to talk about because when I was first introduced, I, I heard about these great big projects you guys and you're talking about like small meetups of, you know, a dozen firefighters and then kind of progressing like where, where are you at today? What's the. What's new for firefighters and healing? What are you excited about? Um, I have some ideas what you might talk about, but tell, tell listeners what you got going on. Yeah, I will for sure. Like, I mean, this thing's obviously small scale stuff. I mean, um, starting with beer hall, you know, a bunch of firefighters just getting together, getting loud and rowdy. And now we're in a place where we're um, breaking ground. So a uh, really rare transitional healing center, first of its kind in North America. Um, and I'll, I'll share a little more context on that and uh, another big initiative we do. But before we get there, 
I like this, what we were, we just broke ground on this initiative in May 19th. And when our team came together, our team would develop our developer, our builders, I'd like to say Carl Sanderson, George Sherman, the main players that really helped bring us to fruition. One thing I was pondering on, I, I'm a heavy thinker philosophically when it comes to this experience, because I've seen so many amazing things in over the 11 years. And I, it's actually harder to even comprehend, to even make any sense. I, I don't think we have a brain that can actually, oh, I know that can comprehend the magnitude of these things. Right. So I was pondering on the 10 year anniversary. So I had my 10 year, you know, and it, and it was last year in the midst of all this and this building and stuff and the pandemic and stuff. And then when we put the green light in play to move forward at the building in the midst of a pandemic, I thought to myself, how in the world could I have been in one house that blew up on me? And within the short time of a decade, one house burned all the way down. And now there's one that has actually been, was built all the way up to help burn survivors, firefighters, and first responders. So I pondered that. That's a phenomenon to me in 10 years, like that that could have ever happened. So that's part of that blessing. But what I was seeing the bigger kind of our initiatives, Chris, that we have going on is, you know, we started really as a little engine that could, right? We, we started with bringing excitement, hope, love, healing into the burn unit. We would drive down there. We'd do this thing called Christmas blessing. We got four fire rigs. We pack them up full of gifts. And on Christmas, we would go and spread the love in these in the burn unit. So everybody felt the love in there and they, helped, they felt the healing. Um, we'd feed, you know, the homeless shelter. We'd feed all 150 of the clinicians. So it started with the Christmas blessing. And then that got going. And then what we did is we had a dream. And the dream was all these docs were in my ear years ago. And they said, we got to create a burn camp, a pediatric burn camp for burn patients up in you know, somewhere. We didn't know where it was. I'm like, oh, let's do that. We were sending them out to Colorado and they were going to Colorado and, and we were partnered with all these different airlines and we were doing that. And then we thought, gosh, we got to have our own burn camp. So five years ago, we finally brought Camp Red stands for Realize Every Dream. We brought that dream to reality and we have our own burn camp up in Cross Lake at a place called Camp Knudsen. We just finished uh, this year, looked a little different being with the virus, but we just finished five years of that. So when we Brought that to fruition. We thought, okay, what more can we do now? So we were, you know, we started doing really well in fundraising and holding galas, and these things are getting packed. Said at our main burn surgeon at HCMC, we said, what more can we do? And also Kyle's burn surgeon, we said, what more can we do? Where is a bigger need? And he says, well, we have a housing need. We need help with housing. I'm like, well, we can do that. So what we did is. We initially started, ran this messaging out at one of our gals to our donor base to see if we could raise some money for doing some exploration. And what we did is we were really successful in that efforts. So we then, we had three, we actually, today we have five. I'll just say, we started with three apartment buildings, three apartment units, one bedrooms. And then we went to five and we did this for like kind of a feasibility study to see if we, this need, what this need looked like, right? And could we fulfill it or... So anyway, what we found is that this need is so great that we, we first of all, our hospital, Hennepin Healthcare serves a seven-state reach. It's a mature burn unit. So when you're burned in Dakotas or Wyoming or Wisconsin, any of the main um, kind of the Midwest up here, 
they fly you to HCMC. They helivac you in there. There's a helipad on top of the hospital, and that's where our family. So when they come into town, when their child is burned, they literally get in their car with nothing. They just drive their car here. They come to a big city from North Dakota. So what we do is we put them up in our apartments, and they're beautiful apartments, and they stay there free of charge. We don't charge anybody a cent for any of this. And what we found is five wasn't really fitting the need. It was bigger. It was greater. And then what we figured out is this is not only just bricks and mortar. This is actually transformational. This is life-saving. So we figured out, okay, we got we to build our own building. So, um, so we set out to then, that's we flew up to Vancouver actually and met the BC Burn Fund folks and learned who did this, how they did it. And we came back with the cap figuring out proximity is the most important piece in Minneapolis. We don't have a lot of area real estate, you know? So, and plus we need our families a block away from where their child is, or they're not going to leave the, the hospital. That's just the reality of it. So what we did after three years is we found our spot, which is a block away from Hennepin healthcare. It's right behind. And most folks won't know this from, up in Canada and, and elsewhere, but here we have, it's, we're actually located right behind the world headquarters of thriving. So the, our billion is, it's so exciting. We're going to be going to be skyway connected actually to the hospital. So we have, we're going to have 12 units. We broke ground on May 19th. This building will be a 10 story building, but we'll be one floor of it. So we purchased one floor from um, our developer and our, our builder for $6 million, which is a huge price tag. And we're, this is all so far just private fundraising. And we, we're going to have this will come to fruition. And um, it was 16 months. We're under that now. And we're really excited. But the one, the really cool piece I want to point out here, Chris, to your audience and listeners is this healing center, this transition healing center, this legacy footprint of healing is the first of its kind in North America. And the cool part of how I see that is the interior of the building has been built out after the oldest firehouse in Minneapolis. It was fire station one. It was built in the early 1900s. It had horse-drawn carriages back in the day with a hayloft. So it has all these artifacts, actually. And they're tearing the station down this, this fall. And we're taking the pole, the brick, the bells, the lighting, all these cool remnants and artifacts of this, and we're weaving them into our building. So our building will fill and flow as you are walking through a firehouse. So um, it'll be, we'll have community space in there. It'll be beautiful. It just won't be bricks and we'll have um, SOAR programs in there, support programs for burn survivors. We're also, this building will serve not only just the burn community, but any firefighter or first responder coming into Twin Cities, 60 mile or greater, they'll be able to stay free of charge. We're actually opening it up now to any medical prognosis at all, whether that's heart, cancer, PTSD. And then we're also giving other nonprofits an opportunity to, for them to use our space to help move their initiatives forward and their mission forward. So PTSD is one of those things. We have a, one of our partners that's going to be offering that. So uh, it'll, it'll just, it's going to be a really big piece of our legacy that we leave here long before long after we're gone. And uh, we're just super excited about it and just excited. But, and it's been one of the most powerful experiences I could have ever seen and being a part of it and, um, in, in the midst of a pandemic. 
Yeah, it's a, I'm sure it's a crazy time to be building centers for housing folks with what's going on in the global, you know, pandemic. But I don't want to, so you, it was May 19th. Was that this year, 2021 that you broke ground? Yeah. You know, and, and on our website too, Chris is, we had our grant, we had a lot of news coverage down there and stuff. And, you know, um, anybody can learn about any of this on our tabs on our website and they can see this, the groundbreaking video and it's pretty cool. And the other cool part to this, and I, I know this is probably isn't right on point with the topic, but so um, when we did this groundbreaking, we had the mayor of the city come down. We had the, the, the president of the hospital, but we brought a fire truck down there and it was ladder four. And I got to till the back of it into the construction site. And I hadn't done that in years and, and everything is pretty cool when you're tilling. It's opposite of what you normally drive. So it was a really powerful day. And I, I it brings me to tears to think about, um, you know, what's been covered here in this in such a short time. And, and um, I really encourage any listener to, they want to learn more about the transition healing center, just see it. We have a fly through video on our website. It shows all these beautiful units. They're all um, got a, tons of ways people are getting involved with sponsoring these things and being a part of it. But, you know, it's, it gives everybody an opportunity, particularly in the world that we're living in today, to just get involved with some good, you know, do some good. Like the only way we're really going to get through any of this is the antidote of it is, is, is really leaning into good things that you can find within the day. And, you know, whatever philanthropy mission thing that really strikes your heart, go get in part of that. If, you know, time, talents or treasures, like that's, that's the antidote. And we've, even though we are in this difficult time, as far as, you know, our gala was shut down last year and we couldn't host it in person. Now we're getting a lot of the same messaging coming through. One thing that really, you know, really struck me was just the support that showed up. I think the big thing is most people have never even heard the messaging of our new transition healing center. So when they find out, they're like, well, how did I not know about this? And we really are a small organization doing big things. Yeah, I appreciate it. And I appreciate you sharing. There's some great videos of the groundbreaking of the, the facility. Uh, you can Google Firefighters for Healing Transition Center or Camp Red. We'll have all the links in the show notes. Um, we have that and the man in the red bandana. I pulled the we were chatting here. And, uh, and Kyle's video as well that I was kind of talking about. That will be at dustsafetyscience.com slash 150 for this episode, 150. That's kind of want to close out. I mean, we talked through a lot, Jake. This has been, oh, geez, it's been transformational for me to hear about what you're doing. And it gives me a better recognition of what goes on after, geez, after the, after the explosion. I mean, that's what we spend every day talking about on this podcast. People know fires, explosions, what goes on with the, the victims, what goes on with the first responders after that. And even, even you mentioned as a firefighter, it's kind of left it, okay, they, they go to the burn unit and then we don't see them. Your, your first introduction to the burn unit was, was the hard way for, for lack of a better way to say it or more elegant way to say it. But then that all happens, like that happens and life happens and, you know, family happens and, and things afterwards. So I just wanted to get this podcast interview together, share some of that story, to share a lot of what you're doing, encourage people to get involved. There's ways you can sponsor Camp Red. There's ways you can, can sponsor and get involved with the Transitional Healing Center. There's ways you can get involved with the mission overall. A little way to contact Jake in the show notes again at dustsafetyscience.com slash 150. I mean, that's that's all I have for today other than saying thank you for your time. Any any other last notes or what well, I was going to ask, but you kind of already gave it to me was any recommendations for how we can better support the victims of, and in our case, we're talking about workplace strategies, so industrial fires and explosions, but burn victims are, are, are burn victims either way. Anything you see that, that 
we can do to to help with that mission other than things you've already given us in terms of you know sending cards sharing information identifying reasons to to move forward in life and that sort of stuff anything to close off on well i just say chris you know point your you know your listeners to you know anything in your geography right like you know burn community i mean you know there's just so much i mean it touches such a small population of the world but when it does it's a huge life-changing altercation in people's life and, it, and not only from just the pain and you know um physical disability dis- you know kind of dis- disabling position but economically as well i mean you you're out of work you know kyle knows all this you know many many people have been through this know this and then you know mom's out of work and then if two parents are out of work then they don't have enough money so i would just encourage people to go and what's in their wherever their geography you know maybe look and point some support and love there and in the means of time treasures or talents you know because we we need them all and and if anybody wants to learn more they can come on our website too and we uh we always need you know uh, people that have networks right and and that's what this business and all and philanthropy is all about is just connecting with people that have the resources and it aligns with their mission and that's good but i also just want to leave and thank everybody. Number one, Chris, for reaching out and wanting to help us share the story of the firefighters for healing and kind of our mission, but also just, you know, the kindness of your heart, your, your time, and then all your listeners that are tuning in and listening right now. Like I just, thanks for listening. Like being an attentive listener is just so much in itself right there. So just want to extend my, my heartfelt gratitude and appreciation for everybody that tuned in today to listen. I appreciate it a hundred percent. And I want to say thanks, Jake. Those that are in the pot in the audience will know I'll I'll move in across the, the country of Canada here soon. Actually, I'll be I'll have moved by the time this episode comes out. Um I'll be a little bit closer to where you're at. So I'm hoping to get down to to uh to Minneapolis and check things out down there with this sometime in twenty twenty two. Heaven forbid travel makes it better. <laughs> We'd be honored to have you, you know. I'd really be honored to have you, Chris. And you know, I'll keep you in the loop too. And you know, we have our kind of our grand opening with our billions and be in two thousand spring two thousand twenty-three. So uh, you know, I'll keep you in the loop on that. And then um it, we'd be honored to have you. We'd be honored to shake your hand in person, my friend. Awesome. Well, that's great. Let's let's cut off there for today. I don't want to take any more of your time than we already have, but I, I appreciate it, Jake. I appreciate the work that you're doing with firefighters for healing. You mentioned a couple other names, and and I had, didn't write them down. Of folks that are involved, uh, I appreciate their involvement. I know Kyle, um, in addition to many others, has has supported the cause, and I I think it's completely worthwhile. So I, I appreciate it, and look forward to the chance to hopefully get you back on the podcast in the future as well. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so very much, Chris. Thanks, Jake. We'll talk soon. So you've been listening to myself, Dr. Chris Cloney, and Jake Laferriere, and we've been talking about the history of the Firefighters for Healing organization. Um, we talked through Jake's backstory, his dream to become a firefighter, his, you know, how he built that up, how he followed in his, his dad's footsteps and really got a, a vocation and a profession that he really, really enjoyed. And he kind of took us down the, the path of, you know, what happened to him and how he, how he lost that through what ended up being a backdraft explosion, a fire that he was fighting. And the really kind of, we'll say interesting part was, Getting to the burn unit and being introduced to that world the hard way as being a burn survivor, but then the the sheer not knowing that, that all that existed. And I'm assuming that most of the folks listening to the podcast, myself included, don't know that exists. <laughs> and it's important because we talk about fires and explosions, preventions, protection. We'll run, you know, events to support victims of tragedies as well. 
but it didn't cross my mind, you know, what does the burn unit look like and, and what do they go through in that stage and what what can we do to help them then and, and move on forward? So I appreciate him sharing that story. I appreciate him sharing through Firefighters for Healing, How Can a Boat, what they do, why they do it, um, how they do it. We talked a bit about his involvement with Kyle. And again, I'm hoping to get Kyle on for a podcast interview in the future to share that side of the story in terms of combustible dust. Um, we talked about the projects that Firefighters for Healing had been involved with. Um, everything from small meetups to Christmas blessings to pediatric burn camp, which is a, a fantastic idea that they, they've done several with partnerships and now they do on their own as well. Apartments and then building up to what is now their transitional healing center that right there in, in uh, Minneapolis and Minnesota, uh, which is a multi-unit building basically for transition from, from burn survivors and their families and first responders that they're, they're expanding out to as well to give them the tools and things that they need. And we talked about some of these tools and the three I highlighted from Kyle's conversation I want to leave off on on this podcast is cards, messages to those that are have gone through this. Jake, in his own words, explained what that meant for him and how it helped getting him through. We talked about this kind of second most and maybe that's not the best the best way to put it, but, but being there, being a person that's open to take on some of that to help others. It's one of the roles that you can play if you're not a burn survivor, but you can go in and, and get involved with. And my wife works at a pediatric, uh, large pediatric hospital here. So she knows the power that has with the kids going in and, and volunteering your time to be involved with them. And then, you know, helping develop this reason to, to live, for lack of a better word. That's, I think, the third piece of the puzzle that kept coming back. And I kept putting an R every time Jake said something about it here. Like, you know, faith was one of his big reasons you know, the good things that are going to come in the day, try to identify those, having a mission, having a vision, having something working towards, whether that's getting back to the job that you loved, whether that's getting back into the sport you loved, whatever it is. I think those three elements of, of being involved with the, the cards, sending out the well wishes, you know, having having someone there to help and then hopefully this giving a, a reason to not be in despair and to, to move forward or maybe three of the elements and I'm kind of making it up as I go along here, but three elements I hope they can take away from this interview as, as being some things that can help uh, help those that are suffering through this. Certainly support, check out Firefighters for Healing. And Jake's point is really good that check out your local hospital, see what they, you know, what they have going on. And he had the three T's, which were time treasures and talents. So see if you can go, uh, go provide those to those areas. And that, that might be something that really make a difference in somebody's life, really make a difference in, in, you know, what's going on at that center. So leave it off for there. As always, I want to say thank you for listening to the Dust Safety Science Podcast. Hope you have a safe and productive week ahead. I appreciate everything you're doing in industries handling combustible dust around the world, uh, making them safer with the work that you do every day. Mm-hmm.